Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Just a warning before we start. This episode deals with descriptions of sexual assault and listener discretion is advised. In 2015, I was a reporter on our news desk, and so that means you're often catching fly balls with news stories, breaking news. Ashley Fance works at CNN. She has a regular beat there, covering crime and policing. So there wasn't anything that unusual when, in September 2015, she was tasked with covering a press conference called by a police force in North Carolina. Arriving at the hall where the conference would take place, Ashley was curious. I was uh, working in the newsroom uh, covering uh, daily stories, and I was asked to cover a press conference out of North Carolina, and we were a little unsure as to what it was about. She went in and sat down, and the local police chief walked out onto the stage. What he said was shocking. A police chief got uh, up on stage, announced to a group of reporters that his department had destroyed 333 rape kits. He really didn't explain how it happened or who was affected by it, but he said that he regretted that the department had done that. And the press conference was over, and I had to kind of pick my chin off off of the floor. I wondered how could this happen why did it happen? I was imagining some, you know, Barney Fife going into the evidence room and tripping over stuff and contaminating it all in one fell swoop, so I knew I had to find out more. Leaving the press conference, Ashley was in shock. The police officer had admitted openly that the force had destroyed more than 300 rape kits. What did that mean, Ashley wanted to know. Was that just an administrational error, or could it mean 300 people denied justice? 300 attackers never caught. When I covered that press conference, I had written a lot in my career. I've spent 20 years covering criminal justice, and I had written a lot about sexual assault, and I knew the importance of a rape kit in solving not only sexual assaults but other crimes, you know, using DNA to connect suspects to multiple crimes. Rape kits are hugely important in investigating sexual assaults. In these kind of attacks, the victim's body becomes the crime scene. The kit is a way for specially trained nurses to collect DNA samples and document any signs of trauma on the victim's body. Conviction rates for sexual assaults are as worryingly low in the US as they are in the UK. So when court cases too often come down to he said, she said, a rape kit can provide the only physical evidence that might sway a jury to convict. 
Ashley had heard from survivors just how intrusive and uncomfortable undergoing these tests could be. So to see the kits then destroyed before a conviction, that could mean a difference in seeing someone behind bars or not. Immediately, Ashley wanted to investigate. How had this happened here, and how common was it? But at the same time, she had her regular reporting job to get on with. As soon as I filed that daily story about that press conference that I had to dig in more, so that required me to do two jobs at once. I would come into the office, work an eight-hour, eight-and-a-half-hour shift, if you will, on the news desk, and then I would spend, in my free time, another four-and-a-half hours or so digging into this story about the destroyed rape kits. Quickly, Ashley filed a record request with the North Carolina police force that had admitted the mistake. She asked for any documentation they had on how and when the kits were destroyed. It took a couple of months to come back, but when it did... That yielded an internal audit that a lieutenant at the department had conducted. So now she had a name. The name of the lieutenant that had done this internal investigation. So she asked to sit down and for him to talk her through it. I learned through interviews with him that the evidence was destroyed over a period of 10 years, consistently, routinely, simply to make space in the evidence room. The vast majority of the 333 kits, 85%, were never tested for DNA. And he was, I have to tell you, shockingly open with me. It is not the type of transparency often that reporters are used to in talking with police officers. I'm distraught. I'm frustrated. I'm angry that that truly one person may not get justice uh, as a result of, of our practices. But I think they decided that if there was no suspect then the state lab would not, um, would not test, then there was no need to keep the, uh, uh, the kids. Ashley wanted to know the nature of the cases involved in those destroyed files so she could get a sense of the kind of attacks that had gone unsolved. For about two days straight in his office, we talked. The department itself refused to provide the investigative case files that were tied to each rape kit when I requested them. And so while I was in his office, I asked him to read those case files aloud to me verbatim. And that's all he did for two days. So that's how I was able to know that these rape investigations were extremely poorly conducted. Well, that one police department, and it was in Fayetteville, North Carolina, was a good story. I wanted to know whether it was an anomaly. So Ashley is on to something. But she's a busy news reporter, and she can see just how much work this is going to be. So she heads to her editor to pitch the idea of a much bigger investigation. I knew that I had to come to the editors with something more than my hunch that we needed to dig in. You know, when you're in a daily newsroom and you're, you're focused on breaking news, I had to have something. So after I got the audit, I did go to an editor and I did pitch it. That person was not enthusiastic. I'm not a person who takes no ever. Um, so I went to another editor, Jan Winburn, and I've done previous investigations with her. And she is an editor who who really listens to reporters, who doesn't dismiss them outright. I took the audit to her and she sat with me for two hours as we tried to 
peel back what exactly this police document was saying. So, so it was not easy at all. It, there was, there were discouraging moments a lot, particularly in the beginning to get this story approved. Finally, her editor gives her the go ahead. Excited, Ashley got to work with a vengeance, putting in record requests to police forces all over the country. I talked to my editor, we decided to scale up the investigation and we ended up sending records requests to 207 law enforcement agencies around the country in every state, so three to five in in every state. This might sound simple, it wasn't. So much of investigative journalism is not glamorous. You are calling every single police department, asking, you know, who is your point of contact for if I'm going to send a public records request your way. You know, many law enforcement agencies, you know, are still using faxes. So you would have to fax the record request. Um, You would have to follow up and make sure that they received it. And then every single state has a different public records law that says how long the person you're filing that records request to has to respond to you. And so I had to kind of create for myself a reminder kind of email to to say, okay, check in with this law enforcement agency at this date. And when you're talking about, you know, 207 law enforcement agencies, that's a lot to juggle. I asked every law enforcement agency, how many rape kits have you destroyed since 2010? And keep in mind that these records requests went out in mid 2016. So how many rape kits have you destroyed since 2010? I want the case numbers, dates of destruction, dates the kits were taken into evidence. And I asked for information about whether or not the kits had been submitted to a lab for testing. I asked whether a district attorney or a prosecutor had approved the destruction of the rape kit or if there was an officer, I wanted the officer's name, who approved the destruction. It was an extremely detailed records request. With the request sent off, Ashley got on with her day job. And then, weeks later, the responses started to come in. But what we started getting back were some departments actually created spreadsheets for us that were very detailed and answered all the questions. Some police departments said, hey, we don't keep records at all of that, which was shocking to me because I thought, "Okay, you're destroying evidence and you're not even keeping track of it. There was one police department that sent us just a box of property receipts. So, again, tedious work. Ashley would open each response, read through, and log them in a database. This was a big job. It wasn't just 207 responses. So you figure that if you if you get those responses, you might have one of those 207 requests that's going to yield a hundred or more cases. And so you'll have other documents tied to every single one of those hundred cases. This began to seem like a real Herculean task to go through all of those responses and make sense. And many of the responses contained errors. Some of them were obvious, like police would list, say that they destroyed a kit before they received the kit. So also they sent us um, documentation about evidence they destroyed that 
were not rape kits too. So we had to filter that out and it took months. And I say we because I was joined about seven or eight months into my reporting by Sergio Hernandez, who is a very talented data journalist. Without him, we wouldn't have been able to do this story because he built a database uh, for us. That is not a skill that I have. And Sona Vashi, who is also a very skilled data journalist. So it was the three of us working on this project. And yet this wasn't the whole picture. As well as knowing how many kits had been involved, Ashley wanted to know what stage each investigation had got to. Were the kits destroyed after every possible avenue was explored, or were some thrown out before an investigation even got going? I was curious to know, if we think back on Fayetteville, North Carolina, and what was happening there, you know, they weren't interviewing witnesses. They weren't even pursuing known suspects. There was very little work being done in these investigations, and they were being closed and the evidence destroyed. So I wanted to know, okay, was that happening in other places? So we sent out a second round of records requests, which yielded more than 1,400 rape investigations. But that wasn't all. Ashley knew that for the investigation to be complete, they needed to identify only the rape kits that were destroyed where there was a real chance of them being put to use. So if the statute of limitations for a crime had already run its course and the person could no longer be prosecuted, even if they were found, then it wasn't such an issue if the kit was destroyed. But if they hadn't, and there was still a chance for justice, well, then that was concerning. But... In a country made up of so many states and legal jurisdictions, pinning all of that down was incredibly hard to do. There were hurdles around every corner in reporting this story. Not only did we have to calculate the statute of limitations in hundreds of cases, we also had to eliminate from our analysis kits in which there may have been something called byproduct evidence saved. So when a rape kit is tested, some labs will retain a fraction of the DNA from those kits and either send it back to the police department or keep it at the lab. And so that was a tremendous amount of reporting to do records requests, interviews with crime labs and agencies, asking them whether or not it was even conceivable that after destroying the evidence in the rape kit, could they have possibly on hand any DNA from the kit? And so if they did, then we didn't count those rape kits. We also had to, in reading through the case files, our experts said there may be permissible circumstances to destroy a kit, like after a case is adjudicated or in cases in which police thoroughly investigate and determine no crime occurred. So we had to weed out those kits as well. And then we got to the kind of wild obstacle course of determining the statute of limitations. You know, Sergio and and Sonam were, you know, phenomenal in this regard. We all, of course, worked together to do this. We had to read Justia, which is a, a website with the statute of limitations. The statute of limitations in the United States is incredibly, incredibly complex. So the laws vary from year to year, and then they also vary from circumstance to circumstance. So what we did was we looked at the date that the crime occurred. We looked at the crime that the police listed in the case file. Then we read through the statute of limitations law in the state that was relevant to that sex crimes investigation. And we made our determination as to whether or not the kit was destroyed before the applicable statute of limitations. (laughs) 
sometimes I look back on it, honestly, and I cannot believe we did it. I guess we were just all in the zone and we were really committed to reporting this story. Finally, they had it. More than 4,000 detailed reports into rape investigations, most with the identifying details redacted. Ashley stared at the pile. Even if she could read through all of these herself, was she really the best person to decide if the police investigation had been thorough enough? I could not be the judge and jury of these rape investigations. So I sought out Joanne Aschenbach, who runs In Violence Against Women International. She used to run the San Diego Police Department Sex Crimes Unit. She is incredible. Talk about a very, very skilled sex crimes investigator. I sent her maybe a 10 or 12 investigations that seemed obviously poorly handled to me. Again, known suspects not even pursued. Witnesses that could have been talked to were not. Even crime scenes that police didn't bother to go to. And I said, Joanne, I'm doing this investigation. I'd really appreciate it if you could look at these cases. And she sent back those cases annotated with all the mistakes that she saw being made by the cops. And a light bulb went off and I just thought, we have to do this. So that was Ashley's next move. She assembled a team of legal experts, former lawyers and police officers, more than a dozen people. And one by one, they picked apart some of the reports. Their responses and their notes fed into the final story. These are professionals who really care about this. And they were appalled by what they were seeing in these rape investigations and child sexual abuse investigations. So they generously gave of their time, but I think they were also, frankly, very pissed off to see what was happening. In CNN's online story, the reader can look through the reports, with the experts' annotations at the side pointing out how things could have gone better. But even choosing which of those reports to use in the final reporting was tricky. What you have to decide is if you're looking at a case file in which the victim's name is not redacted, it was important for me first to send those case files to experts to say, is this is this a poorly handled case? Do you think this is something that we should highlight? And why do you think we should highlight it? What point are we making? Because it's really important to decide that before you cold call a victim and shake their lives up because you have to be the one to tell them that their rape kit was destroyed. You have to be the one to tell them that their sexual assault investigation was poorly handled because they don't know. In most of these cases, the victims have no idea that their rape kit has been destroyed or how their case was handled. Ashley not only wanted to tell this story carefully and respectfully, but she also wanted to give the assault survivors a chance to explain what the destruction of this evidence meant to them. And that's how she found herself travelling yet again from Atlanta, where she's based, to North Carolina. Ladies and gentlemen, American Airlines would like to welcome you to the Charlotte Douglas International Airport, where the approximate local time is 2.33. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened until the seatbelt... I'm always, I'm always flying if I can. I, I hate being in the car for very long. Uh, so no, I'm, I'm always flying, you know, always like staying in the cheapest hotel I can find. There, in North Carolina, where the whole story started, she was able to connect up with some of the women whose kits had been destroyed by the police force. The officer in Fayetteville, North Carolina, actually gave me, with these victims' permission, their names. And so one of them was a woman who reported her gang rape to the Fayetteville Police Department. A detective interviewed her. 
This woman, who Ashley agreed to call Christine, had gone to the police after she'd been attacked in her own apartment by four men. He took me to an apartment. I had consented to be with him, and he said he had to leave the room, and he came back, and he had three of his friends with him. I told them no, I told them that's not what I wanted. She gave the names of the men who allegedly raped her. The detective, during that first and only interview with this woman, told her that legally what happened to her wasn't rape, and then the detective brought down a book of statute and read aloud the language for first and second degree rape and said, you weren't raped, and then marked the case as if no crime occurred. The detective didn't even bother to interview these men, didn't even try. She was able to make a decision. She was able to remember what happened, and she was allowing this to happen. Still, Christine underwent an exam with a rape kit, a process she found hard to deal with. It felt like a further violation, she told Ashley. But she was willing to do it if it could help convict the men that assaulted her. And then shortly thereafter, the detective authorized the destruction of this woman's untested rape kit. It was outrageous. I interviewed this detective and, um, you know, it was a long interview. And at the end, the detective finally, you know, said that she could have done more in the case. When there was no crime that was committed, we don't keep the evidence. Do I wish that things were different in this situation? Yes. I wish I had had more time um, or more evidence to work with. Another woman Ashley spoke to told her she had been sexually assaulted by her own father when she was just 16 years old. The teenager, who had an abnormally low IQ, had been in contact with social workers for a long time. So when she was attacked, she told them all about it. This time, the kit was used and a match was found. The detective in that case received information from the crime lab. That rape kit was tested. Received information from the crime lab, which indicated clearly that the father's sperm was on the teenager's rape kit, on the vaginal swabs of her rape kit. That is gold to a detective. That means that he can then go out and get a confirmation DNA sample, like a cheek swab from the suspect, and then make an arrest. But instead, the detective didn't didn't do that. He didn't pursue the father at all. He ended up closing the case and later authorizing the destruction of the rape kit. So the evidence was gone. And the result of that was, you know, that case went nowhere. These survivors trusted me to tell the story. And I'm so grateful that they did. They're extraordinary people, very, very strong people. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
Alright, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It had been months and months of reporting now, and Ashley and the team had built a picture of a widespread and systematic issue. Now, they need to go to the police forces involved to run their findings by them for comment. And on a story this big, that's no easy task. We believe it's a tenet of good investigative journalism for that there not to be any surprises with anyone we're writing about. And so once we made our determinations and we felt our findings were correct, we then sent every police department their data back to them. So we showed them in spreadsheets, here are the kits, including, you know, the case numbers, dates of destruction, you know, other pieces of data that they had provided to us. And that we had confirmed, by the way, through actually reading the case files and doing follow-up interviews with the agencies. Here's the rape kits that we're going to report you destroyed before the statute of limitations or when there was no statute of limitations. These are what we're calling unsolved cases. And so we sent that to every agency and we gave them ample time to review it, to to tell us if we're wrong on anything. And some of them, you know, there were there was a kit here and there from a few departments where they said, oh, no, um, this is the wrong destruction date or you've got this incorrect. And that's exactly what we wanted. We wanted them to be reading this carefully. We also then featured in the story every single response that we got back from every law enforcement agency. In November 2018, they published an incredible deep dive microsite that takes a reader through the findings, tells the stories of the survivors, and allows you to dig into some of the flawed police reports. Ashley and her team have found at least 400 sexual assaults where vital evidence had been destroyed before justice had been served. And I think, you know, a top line here is that we surveyed 207 law enforcement agencies. 99 of those said that they destroyed rape kits. But you have to think that there are more than 18,000 law enforcement agencies in the United States. I mean, we sampled a very, very small fraction and found this going on. So there's no doubt that there are more than 400 cases out there where this has happened. This is just a sort of indication of a a much bigger, I think, forest fire going on. Finally, it was time to publish. So the days leading up to our publication, we were working, you know, really late. I mean, I worked a couple nights before we published till midnight. We came in the day we were going to publish. I came in at 7 a.m. We published at 6.41 a.m. the next day. Like I knew the date of birth or I mean, the time of birth was 6.41. So we were up all night 
And then that day I continued to stay awake until like 5.30 because there was just like an immediate national reaction on Twitter. And I was so pumped and I just had a ton of energy. And I've actually never pulled an all-nighter. And <laughs> and I did and I felt great. And I remember going home that night and my husband was like, God, you shouldn't have driven. Why did you even drive home? You've been up for like 34 hours. And I was like, I feel great. I want to drink. <laughs> the story was full of incredibly powerful revelations. And immediately it began to have an impact. We found that during the course of our reporting, we were spurring change before we came out with, with the story. The attorney general in Washington state announced that he would contact every law enforcement agency in his state and ensure that rape kits were not being inappropriately destroyed because we reported on the Seattle Police Department. Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York called the destruction of kits that we revealed disturbing. His spokesperson, I'm sorry, called it disturbing. And then the governor directed state police to contact the Jamestown Police Department to ensure that it was complying with state law regarding the handling of kits. There was a state representative in Georgia who immediately began drafting legislation to outlaw the destruction of rape kits in that state. So there were a lot of changes that it caused immediately. It was deeply gratifying. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Payoff after all of those many months of training. <laughs> um, yeah, falling asleep in my office. Yeah, <laughs> like with paper cuts and like paper on me. You know, some police departments stopped destroying rape kits and started to review their internal practices. But, you know, there, you know, there's at least one law enforcement agency that says it's still destroying rape kits. So it's still going on. It had been a long and exhausting process for Ashley and her team. Looking at the final report, Ashley couldn't help but think back to that very first tip-off, the police station press conference in North Carolina nearly three years ago. By one police force owning up to their mistake, Ashley had been able to uncover a widespread practice that urgently needed to be addressed. But working on these kind of stories day in, day out, staring at the details of horrific crimes, it has an impact. You know, it's not it's not like a reporter to talk about themselves or what they went through. I have to say, it wasn't the horrifying aspects of the descriptions of sexual assault and also child sex abuse, we found a lot of rape kits belonging to children and teenagers were never tested and destroyed, which was awful to experience in, in a way I did, I did feel some secondary trauma. But it was over and over and over again, reading investigations that really strongly conveyed to me that First, there was a huge problem with training with the police, but it was hard to read them and think that that these victims were not dismissed. And that did make me very angry. I, I was angry. I think anyone would be angry reading those. It was very emotional for me. It was, it was not easy, but I kept reminding myself that who it's not easy for are victims and it didn't really matter how upset I personally was, it was about them. That's all for this episode of The Tip-Off. You can read all about this investigation on the CNN's website. I put a link in the show notes. 
Many thanks to Ashley Fance for talking us through that one. I'm Maeve McLennigan. If you'd like to tip off and you want to help us out, then please do tell a friend about the show or rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was edited by the wonderful Chica Ayres and the theme music was by Dice Muse. This series of The Tip Off is brought to you in association with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism and funding from Charities Aid Foundation. Stay tuned for more stories behind the headlines. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.